Some of you came here because you wanted to sing, some because you wanted to pray, some because you wanted to be here for the teaching. Uh, but to, to press this even further, why not do all this on your own? Why come here in this place this morning? Why not do it on your own? You can self-select your own worship playlist on Spotify if you would like. So if your, uh, your worship playlist is more Rock of Ages or more Gaithers, that's, uh, that's an option to you. If your worship playlist is more the uh, new album that just came out from Passion, that would be your choice as well. You can pick any of those, so why not just stay in your car or in your room and sing those songs? Certainly you can find better preachers. It wouldn't take long on YouTube to, to dial up somebody that could, uh, that could do better than I could, and certainly you can find better coffee. So why not avoid all the awkwardness of the conversations that you probably had whenever you came in this morning? Why not avoid all of that and just do it all yourself? For many, that is exactly the solution to all the problems that they see in our American version of Christianity. Just do it yourself. Just go it alone. Just figure out how to feel it on your own and don't bother with the, the hypocrisy. Don't bother with all of the nonsense that goes on in the churches. Don't bother with all of that stuff. Go find a mountain. Go find a beach. Go find a Waffle House, for crying out loud. Go find something and do your worship there instead of here in a place full of all of this stuff. And I mean, why not? Because you probably, you probably, for at least a little while, will we'll be able to feel it better. Like, you'll be able to feel it more within you. When you sing the songs that you know and you love in your car, you'll probably sing them louder than what you just sang in here. You'll probably sing them with more passion. So why not? Avoid the awkward conversations, avoid the church gossip, or even worse, avoid the broken relationships by someone that you thought was one way that turned out to be something totally different. Trust me, I've had all of those experiences. I've had all of those thoughts. And I work here. So, like, I, I, I understand what it means for all of that, right? I understand to, to, to have that feeling like it'd be better to just do this on my own. Now, I think about these kind of things a lot. It's a big part of my job. It's also just kind of a big part of the way that I'm wired. Before I was ever employed by a church, I thought about these things. What made people show up? I just think about this stuff. And what I've learned is that for the most part, a lot of people don't think a whole lot about that question. You just do it. Out of routine, out of obligation, out of whatever, you just kind of do it. You don't really know a reason than because you just, you just do, or maybe because that's what you're supposed to do. That's what I've learned for most people. And this morning, what we're going to look at is a passage that's going to shed some light on this question uh, that is going to uh, maybe kind of help frame that question, the answer to that question for you, for at least some of you, maybe reframe the way you view church, the way you walked in here this morning, why you show up here week in and week out, good and bad, cold uh, or warm, tired or energized, and maybe just give you a better answer to that question, why do you go to church? So we're Luke chapter 5, and we're right in the middle of this section that really kind of underscores the title for our series, Jesus for Everyone. Because what we've seen over the last few weeks that we've been together is that 
uh, that, that Jesus has shown up. He's made a declaration of ministry that he, came, uh, that he came for those that were poor, that were outcasts, that were powerless, that were forgotten, that were neglected, that were hurting. And then what we've seen is example after example of how Jesus has done just that. He's administered to the needs of people that were all of those things. Last week, we saw the man that was full of leprosy. We saw the man that had been completely left behind by his Jewish culture and told he can't be a part of worship in the temple. He can't be a part of showing up in synagogue. He can't even be a part of Jewish society. And Jesus healed him. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see another story that sounds very similar. It's not going to be all that different. I could honestly kind of piece together pieces of the last four sermons that I preached and make up a a whole other sermon this morning just from those sections of what I've already preached. It's that level of kind of repetitiveness that Luke is giving us here. And it's really not going to go away in this uh, book, but just hear me out here. It's worth us going back and re-examining this again. Don't check out on me and be like, all right, I heard what he had to say. Because here's what I can tell you. You don't know what I said three weeks ago. Because I know that that's how that works. But if you'll, if you'll hang with me here, if you'll hang with me, then we'll be able to go through this and we'll spend some time uh, this morning and kind of see a few kind of interesting twists that this story Luke gives this morning. So let's read Luke chapter 5 verse 17 and kind of kind of kick off the story for us, a story that if you've been around church much, you've probably heard. On one of those days, this is one of those days when he was traveling throughout this region, on one of those days he was teaching. And Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a On a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So here we go again. This is the the, the very similar story. Jesus blowing people's minds with another healing. Like I said, we've seen him heal a, a woman of a fever, a demon, cast, uh, a demon was cast out, a man full of leprosy, um, and kind of this general record of healing many. And now Luke uh, is going to, for the first time, tell us about a paralyzed man that is being, being healed. Something that's going to happen multiple different times throughout the Gospels, but this is the first time Luke tells us a story like this. And this story is similar uh, to others, uh, in its result, um, but, but there's a part of the story that you can kind of pick up on here that's a little bit, uh, little bit different. In the story we saw last week, the one that has the condition is the one that has the guts to make the trip to see Jesus. The one that has leprosy is the one that throws himself before Jesus. The one that is sick is the one that, 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 that risks everything by showing up in front of Jesus and saying, make me clean. That's what we saw uh, last week. He's the one that does it. But this one is a little bit different. So let's set up this scene and walk through this just a little bit. Jesus is in a house. We don't know whose house. Some have speculated it's Peter's mother-in-law. Some have speculated it's Peter's house uh, himself. We don't really know. I tend to think it's probably not Peter's house because Peter was a fisherman. Probably wouldn't have had a very elaborate house. But there's a lot of people here at this house. There's a lot of people that have shown up to hear Jesus 
teach. This house is playing host to uh, a lot of different factions. You've got the disciples. You've got this general crowd of preacher that or of people that are that are that are pressing in to hear Jesus uh, preach. You've got the teachers of the law or the scribes. You've got the Pharisees from all over, from all kinds of different towns, and they even sent some folks from Jerusalem. So what that tells you is Jesus is making some noise. And so they've sent some of the big dogs from Jerusalem to come in and say, what is it exactly that is being said here? What is it exactly that he is doing? And at this point, Jesus has made some people mad. At this point, Jesus has made some folks a little bit mad. But for the most part, he's really just gotten everybody's attention. He hasn't really ticked off anybody yet. He's kind of pushed some buttons, but he's not made himself public enemy number one just yet. And so they're there to hear this man teach and maybe, just maybe, if they're lucky, see one of these amazing healings that they've heard about for themselves. See if this dude is for real or if he's just some like Benny Hinn knockoff. See if he's really like here to do something amazing. And this place is packed. Big or small, there is no more room. No one can get in to hear this man teach. He has become a local celebrity. And according to Luke, Healing was on the agenda for, uh, for this, this time together, for this morning or this afternoon when they were, they were together. It says that the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And here comes five people, four walking, one on a mat. Four walking, one on a mat. They come in there, and, and, and they're like, okay, we've heard this is where Jesus is at. It's been kind of hard for us to find him. He's been out in the, the wilderness a little bit. He's been out too far we couldn't get this guy to him. We couldn't get our friend to him because dude's heavy and it's hard to carry a guy on a mat. But here he is in town and while Jesus is in town, they're not going to miss their opportunity. They too have an agenda. They want to see that healing put on display. One goes to the right, one goes to the left, one tries to kind of push up through the middle while this paralyzed man sits in the very back of the crowd kind of anxiously waiting to see what's going to happen, looking around like, like you know, what happened with you? Are, you? are you finding a way over there? Is there a pathway for us to make our way down? And then the, each one comes back, and they're like, it's no good over here. Yeah, man, I got no pathway over here either. There's too many people. It's too crowded. But these friends are not too easily discouraged. Where there's a will, there's a way. And that's when one of them, and we don't know if it's the paralyzed man, we don't know if it's, one of the, the four friends, we don't know who it is, but one of them says, if we can't go through them, we'll go over them. And they start getting a little bit creative. And they say, all right, if we can't get through all these people, we got to figure out some other way to get to Jesus. And they look above the heads of the crowd that are in front of them, and they see the roof, maybe a stairwell or a pathway to get to the top of the roof of this house, and they say, they say, I'm in if you are. They kind of look at each other and they say, all right, let's do it. They look down at the paralyzed man and they say, what do you think, man? What do you think about this? Because after all, you're the one that's about to go for a ride, not us. So what do you think about this opportunity? What if we go up to the roof? And he says, I'm in. They head up to the roof, which is not really like a roof that we have here. This is not going to be like shingles and a, and a, and a steep uh, steep side or anything like that. It's going to be a flat roof, one that functions more like a functions more like a porch. 
Um, you know, you could walk up there, you could sleep up there, it's where they would go because you would get a little bit of a breeze and so it would be cooler up there oftentimes. It's, 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 it's firm enough, sturdy enough to be able to walk on, uh, but it's not like solid in the same way that we would, uh, that we would view a, uh, a roof. And so they, they, they say, all right, let's go. So these, the, the, these five start heading in a different direction around the crowd. They go up to the roof. They're up on the roof. And you can imagine if you are inside, you start to hear footsteps up above you as Jesus is teaching. You start to hear different things that are uh, going on. And you can imagine if you're trying to listen, how distracting that might be. But let me just tell you, as somebody who stands up here and does this for a living, Jesus would have been very distracted. Listen, it is one thing to like be able to stand up here and, and teach, and you, and you have like the, the normal noises and things that, that are happening, but man, sometimes when you get distracted, it gets... So I, there was one time I can remember there was a fly that would not leave me alone. It was constantly going around, and I'm like, you, you guys probably, like I'm like waving. Y'all can't see the fly, right? But I'm up here like, like waving, and y'all think, man, he's really into it this morning. That is not what was going on. He's feeling the spirit. Nope, it was a fly. Um, and I could not think for anything about anything but that fly buzzing around me, right? So, and, and, and sometimes that happens. Distractions happen. Somebody spills some coffee, and they're cleaning up coffee while I'm up here teaching. And you have to just kind of like go with it and just see if you can get through it. Distractions happen. But I have never... I have never heard footsteps above my head while I was preaching. And so I can imagine that Jesus was a little bit distracted as he is teaching. I can imagine the crowd as he's looking out. Like when I look out at you guys, I have to be like, I'm not sure if he's awake or not. Whenever Jesus is looking out, he's like, why is everyone looking up? Like, why is nobody looking at me while I'm talking here? Why is that not uh, the, the case? And so he's probably a little bit distracted, but then when the roof starts to be removed and whenever light starts to break in from uh, above and whenever dirt starts to fall on his head, there is no level of distraction that can compare with that. Teaching is done at that point because the roof is caving in and you got to figure out what are we about to do here? What is happening? And it's at this point that the the roof begins to get peeled back and then a large sheet with a man in it begins to be lowered down in front of Jesus. Lowered down directly in front of him. It says right in the midst there. Um, and, 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 and this is probably a little forward on the part of the friends. It's probably maybe even a little bit rude uh, as it interrupts Jesus' teaching. But the, the, the sheet comes down and, and, and what, what you see is there, Jesus never rebukes anybody. He doesn't say, hey, what are you doing? I'm in the middle of something here. What I've got to say is important. He doesn't rebuke anyone for what is uh, going on. At least we don't have any of that recorded. Um, no one says anything, in fact. No one stands up and says, what are you doing? Whoever owns the house isn't like, hey, hang on a minute. Like, nobody says anything. They're just watching what is happening and then this guy comes down, he's clearly paralyzed, and that's why he's in this sheet, he's on this mat, on the way to the floor, and everybody in that room, Pharisees, scribes, the crowd that is gathered around, the disciples, everybody's like, all right, here we go, this is what we're here for, we came for the show, let's see what happens here, can he really do 
this. The show is about to start. The teaching is good, but the healing is better. And so the room is pregnant with excitement here. Like they are anxious to see what is about to happen. They're hanging on Jesus' words and his actions. And they want to know what is it that Jesus is going to do with a full house of onlookers and the Pharisees in the front row to investigate and verify that he's doing what, he, what, what, what everyone says that he is doing. And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I can imagine this is probably met with several different reactions in the room. And everyone gasped, but, but, but for different reasons. The Pharisees are taken aback by Jesus' language. This man was here for a healing. But Jesus is talking about theological categories. Jesus is making a theological statement to a man who came for a physical healing. And the rest of the crowd, and I'm going to read between the lines here just a little bit. It doesn't say this, so forgive me for speculating. But my guess is they're probably just plain confused. Like, Jesus, I think you misread what's going on here. He didn't show up for a, a, a sacrifice at temple. The dude can't walk. Like, I think you misread what he's looking for here, Jesus. I don't, I don't think you understand what it is that he he, he wants. Last week we saw that the man pressed forward and didn't say, Jesus, heal me physically. He pressed forward and he said, Jesus, make me clean. This week the man never asked for anything that we have recorded. He doesn't say a word. I'm guessing he assumed that what he needed was pretty obvious. He was lying on a mat being lowered down from the roof and he couldn't move. So I'm guessing it was pretty clear, he thought it was pretty clear what he needed. But Jesus undercuts all their expectations, which he does at almost every turn in the Gospels. He undercuts all of their expectations. Jesus looks around the room. He looks at the scribes. He looks at the Pharisees. He reads the room, and he realizes that there is some confusion over what it is that he has just said. Maybe even some outrage starting to brew. The, the temperature in the room has gone from being pregnant with excitement to a little bit antagonistic now towards Jesus. They're kind of they're coming at him a little bit. The faces are getting a little bit red and everybody else is scratching their head like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And then he says this in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? Now, I have been told my whole life that Jesus asked that question because the answer to that question was supposed to be obvious. The answer to that question has never been obvious to me. I have no idea which one of those is harder to say. They both seem impossible to me. Like, which one, which one is harder? That I can jump and make it to outer space or that I can run around the world? I don't know. I can't do any of those things. Like, they're both impossible. But I've always been told that the, that, that, that the answer is so obvious that that's what Jesus is saying. So I've always debated which one is it that's supposed to be the one that's the most impossible. And I think the answer to this question entirely depends on who you are in that room. I think who you are in that room, whenever you say which is, whenever he asks the question, which is harder to say, depending on who you are in the room, the answer to that, that question 
changes. Because I don't think it's quite as obvious as we think it is. The general crowd is like, like the, the ones who've just kind of gathered around to, to, to see what's going on. The general crowd is like, obviously, the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven because that's all just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo anyway. Anybody can say that. That's no big deal. We can test to see if the whole rise and walk thing works. Does the dude get up and walk away? So it's harder to say rise and walk because we can test that immediately. We can indeed see if he does rise and walk. But for the Pharisees, the question is far more complicated. Rise and walk is indeed miraculous, but all kinds of people in the Old Testament have performed miracles. All kinds of people have done different things. The only person that has ever, could ever, or will ever forgive sin isn't a priest, isn't a sacrifice, isn't the high priest on, on, on Yom Kippur. It's not, it's not any of those people who are able to forgive sins. It's God alone. So which is harder? The one that only God can do or the other one that really only God can do but some other people have been involved before? They're both really hard. So for the Pharisees, the answer is the harder one is to be able to say, forgive sin. So it, so it just depends on who you are in the room, which one is more difficult. It depends on what your perspective is that you're coming with. Friends, today when we talk about sin, we tend to talk about it in terms uh, of things that everyone knows, the, the, the biggies. When you say sinner, you have like an idea of what comes into your mind. Generally, we have a list of things that come into our mind. If you grew up as a Baptist in the South, then what you have in mind is you don't drink, cuss, smoke, or chew, or go, go with girls who do, right? That is, that's the list of sins whenever you say sinner. But if you grew up in a different tradition or a different part of the country, then you've got a different list of sins that are the ones that are not, uh, that are not allowed, not, uh, not approved, um, the ones that will get you in trouble. It's hard to say to that crowd who grew up and in, 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 with, with no religious background, who grew up with, with none of that, but have been made aware of their sin, that as they have gone through life, they've realized, hey, wait a minute, I've got a problem I've got to deal with, that they have been, they have been made aware that they have broken God's laws, they have been made aware that they are not good people as much as they thought they were. It's hard to say to that group, rise and walk. Because they, like this paralyzed man, have spent their whole lives in sin. You don't have to convince them of it. They already know it. They already know it. Sometimes they hated this way of life that they've lived, and sometimes they loved every minute of it. But it can be hard for someone who grew up far from God to believe that there is another way that they can live and that there is another way to live their life. But the call of the gospel is that they can indeed rise and walk in newness of life forever. This is what we teach whenever we baptize someone. And whenever we take them down into the water and we say, buried with him in baptism, rise to walk in newness of life forever. There is a new way to walk. And yes, it is miraculous. But man, it can be hard for people to believe that have never seen it and have never tried to live that way. But just as it is hard as it is to come, it, it can be just as hard uh, to believe something like this if you, uh, if you come to the good guy, the churchgoer, 
the guy who grew up in church, who feels like he's known God all of his life, the rule follower, the one that can quote the Bible, the one that can preach the message, the one that is so sure of her theology, the one that is so sure of his heart. It can be hard to go to that person and say, your sins are forgiven. And it's so hard because they don't really believe they have any. They don't really believe that they have any sins. And so whenever you say your sins are forgiven, they're like, yeah, I mean, I kind of get that. I know the church like lingo, but in all honesty, I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty good guy. They may not say it. like It may not come out that way because they know that that doesn't fit the church lingo. But in their hearts, that's what they believe. Yeah, I mean, I'm forgiven. I mean, we're all forgiven. Nobody's perfect, but I'm pretty close like that's kind of that's kind of how it works and it can be so hard to, for them to hear your sins are forgiven because they don't believe that they have any at all functionally that's what's true for them they believe they're good they believe they're justified when they do mess up because they work hard to make sure they're always justified in what they do that when the gossip slips when the anger boils up whenever the 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 the, the manipulation happens whenever the ministry that is achieved happens you can justify many sins by all of those things they can just be dismissed as character flaws or it can just be dismissed as 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 being attacked by others outside the church it's hard to tell a man that thinks he doesn't sin, your sins are forgiven. The image that keeps coming to my mind, and I think this is one that will probably come to my mind a lot when we go through the book of Luke. The image that keeps coming to my mind is like a man that is sitting at the head of a banquet table, surrounded by a feast, and glasses and goblets and ornate cups surround him, and they are full of something to drink. And then you come, and you bring a little plastic water bottle from Walmart, and you sit it in front of him, and you say, I've brought you a gift for the feast. Drink deeply of this water. What's the response going to be? I'm good. Do you see what I have to drink here in front of me? Do you see all the beautiful things I have to drink from? Take your little recycled plastic bottle. Thanks. I appreciate it. And you kind of slide it off to the side. But what he doesn't know is that all of, those, all of those ornate cups, all of those beautiful things that are full of something to drink from, all of those things are full of poison. And the only thing that can offer him anything that will actually relieve his thirst is going to be that little bottle of water. For so many of us, we drink deeply from things that we think will give us life, but instead they are poison. Our own self-righteousness, our own justification, our own ability to be able to say, I'm good enough. Those things look good to the outside. They look moral to everyone else. But what's inside the cup is filthy. It's exactly what Jesus will say about the Pharisees. That the outside is whitewashed, but the inside is dead. That's exactly how so many of us live. Friends, your gratefulness for the declaration of your sins are forgiven will be directly proportioned to how deeply you've drank the poison and how quickly you've realized you need the living water. If you are not 
If you are not blown away by the declaration of your sins are forgiven, my guess is you're still drinking from the poison and not the living water. You don't realize how sick you are. You will be overcome with gratefulness the more you recognize your sinfulness and the quicker you run for the living water. This is the testimony of the gospel. Far too many of the church, we keep drinking from the poison of self-righteousness and we miss the living water right in front of us. Which is harder, rise and walk or your sins are forgiven? My answer is, I guess it just depends. But Jesus in our story this morning wants to make it clear to everyone there, neither one are really an issue for him. They're both within his power to handle. Verse 23. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on, the, on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. It's such a good story. I love how it ends. The five get up and walk away together. They came as four plus one. They walk away as five friends. As best we can tell, I don't think the crowd had fully dispersed. They just got up and walked out from the midst of the crowd, leaving the hole in the roof behind. They just say, I'm out, and they start walking away. They say, see ya, and they walk away praising God because they've never seen anything like this before. Jesus wants to make it clear here in this part of this passage. Whichever question you thought might be the problem for him, you're wrong. Neither are a problem. They might be a problem uh, for you theologically. They might be a, it might be a problem physically, but not to Jesus. Jesus comes in power and with full authority over the physical world and over spiritual realities. Both are within his scope of authority. Now, I'm going to put all this stuff with the Pharisees off till next week. So if you're wondering, like, like this whole like, theological debate that they're kind of getting in here, we're going to talk about all of that next week. So if you're interested in that and you want to know kind of what's going on there, and it will be important, that is uh, for next week. I thought I could address it this morning, but I'm not going to have anywhere near enough time. So for this morning, what I want to go back to is the five friends and Jesus. And their interaction, because I find it fascinating, I find it very challenging, and I find it beautiful. First, I want you to see that this man comes with two problems, physical and spiritual. Two weeks in a row now, Jesus has encountered a man with, a, with physical problems. Two weeks in a row, it is the spiritual problem that he addresses first and primary, because it is our first and primary problem. Friends, in this world, our physical suffering can be intense. For many, it is ongoing. And at times, it will be all that we can do to bear up and to make it through. All of us will endure some measure of this. None of us escapes the physical realities of suffering because of the brokenness and sin that entered into this world. 
the physical, the tangible suffering we endure, the thing that, that is right there, we can, seal it, we can see it, we can feel it, we know it, and it can be easy for that suffering to consume our hearts and consume our minds. So whether we're talking about the death of a loved one, we're talking about things we're going through ourselves, whether we're talking about things that have happened to us, whether we're talking about accidents, or we're talking about mental health, or we're talking about any of these things. We, we can talk about all of these different things no matter what it is that we're talking about, we all are going to have to deal with the, the, the physical. And it can be easy for the physical to dominate us because it's so right in our face all the time. It's right there for us. But Jesus makes it clear that our physical suffering, though deep and abiding for us all, is secondary. Hear me, secondary does not mean non-existent or easily dismissed. It does not mean not significant. It just means it is not our primary problem. Your primary problem, my primary problem, isn't one of physical suffering, but spiritual death. What we need is someone that has authority in both of these realms. And that is what Jesus shows us in both of these stories, last week and this week. Jesus' authority has no bounds. And the best news that we can hear today is not simply rise and walk, but that our sins are forgiven. The only one that could ever offer out that promise to us, that declaration to us, did not withhold it from us. But instead, he came and he demonstrated his power. He didn't just claim it. He showed his power, and the people walked away, and they said, we have never seen anything like this. I can't make any promises about healing that may come physically for any of us. I can tell you, again, that we don't, we don't escape it totally, any of us. We all, we all are subjected to this because it is itself a spiritual problem first. We all will endure, but I can promise you that physical suffering, all of these things will end. They do not get the final word. God gets the final word in our story, and the final word is not death, but life. That is the Christian story. That is the good news. That is the gospel, and it's the one we cling to fiercely in the face of suffering and the shame. And in the shame of sin. Because in the end, it's not the suffering or the sin that gets the last word. The gospel does. To quote David Platt, he says, The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus will heal you of all your physical suffering now, but that Jesus will forgive you of your sins forever. Jesus does this because he knows what our greatest need is just like the man full of leprosy and just like this man on this mat. He knows what we need the most. But don't miss how Jesus does this. There's, a, there's an important thing that happens here. Don't miss how Jesus does this. Jesus was all about inclusion of those that were forgotten. But his declaration on this day was not for the entire crowd that was looking on. It was for these five friends that showed their faith. The key that unlocks that forgiveness is faith. 
He looks up where there used to be a ceiling, and now he sees four faces anxiously, but with anticipation, looking back at him. Jesus looks up, that light hitting his face, coming from this now hole in the ceiling, and he sees these four friends eager to see what Jesus is about to do. And then he looks down at his feet, and he sees a man lying there on this mat, and Luke says that he saw their faith. And he then forgave the man of his sins. Now, there's two options here. We're not exactly sure what it means whenever it says their faith. We know that it's plural. It's not the man that he's referring to specifically. Uh, we know that the friends are including in this. So it could be the four friends. He looks up and saw their faith. And then he looks down at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. Or it could be all five of them. My, my tendency is to take it that whenever Jesus says when he saw their faith, he means all five of them. That's the one that I think makes the most sense. But the text isn't clear. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels and we know from, from elsewhere in Paul's writings that you can't be saved on the basis of someone else's faith. So don't, don't mistake that for what is happening here. We know you can't be saved on the basis of someone else's uh, faith. But... So, so we shouldn't assume that the faith of the four friends has somehow then been transferred to this man that is paralyzed. That would, be, that would be a mistake theologically on a lot of levels. But let's not miss the fact that this word is definitely plural. It was their collective faith that brought this man to Jesus. It was their collective faith that opened up that roof. It was their collective faith that Jesus looked up through that hole and down at this man and recognized. Friends, this man's ultimate need was spiritual, but his physical need was real, and he never would have ended up at Jesus' feet without his friends. He never would have got there. He needed the faith of his friends. Could it be that this is why you should come to church week in and week out? Yes, you can sing the songs yourself. Yes, you can listen to a sermon on YouTube. Yes, you can hike and worship God in his creation. And you should do all of those things. But you know what you can't do? You, on your own, you can never open up, a room, uh, open up a roof and bring a friend to Jesus. You can't do that on your own. You can never sit with someone in their pain which these four friends had to do on some level with this man. To know his need and to go through what they went through to make sure he got to Jesus. You can't sit with a friend in their pain whenever you're all about chasing Jesus all by yourself. You can't do that stuff. You can't stand up on a roof while while Jesus and your paralyzed friend look back up at you with joy and with hope. You never get that experience if you're up on a mountain by yourself. You never get that beauty of, 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 of looking down and seeing the face of Jesus and your friend that you've just lowered down to that floor with a big smile on their face as he gets up to walk. You don't get that joy. You don't get, that, you don't get to have that that experience of faith. It may be this morning that someone next to you needed to borrow your faith for just a few minutes. I say this all the time about worship, but I believe it 
to be so true. Sometimes we sing songs and I struggle to get the words out, not because I don't believe them, but because I don't feel them. But because whenever I, 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 I say them, they get, they get trapped in my mouth and they never make it out because I'm like, I don't feel that reality right now. When we stand to sing what we just sang here, you're my defender, I hide my hope in you. You are the loving arms my broken heart can run to. I will remember that there is nothing you can't do. Maybe you heard that chorus this morning and you think, you know what, I don't, I don't know if I can run to him. And I don't know if there are things that he can't do because right now he hasn't done them. In fact, I feel like there's a whole lot he can't do for me right now because I can't seem to get out of my own way. I can't seem to get past this place where I'm stuck. And then what do I say all the time? What you do in that point is you look around you and you look at the person over there that you know has gone through all kinds of stuff and you look at the person sitting over here in this seat that has gone through all kinds of stuff. They've gone through a season of suffering and they're singing this song with their arms raised and they're worshiping a God that they can testify to the truth that there is nothing he can't do. And that all their hope is firmly in him. And maybe in that moment, you need to borrow their faith for just a little bit. Just for a little bit. Just for a minute. Just long enough to let them lower you down to the feet of Jesus. Maybe that's why you're at church. Because you need to bring a friend to Jesus. To lower them to his feet. And if you aren't here... Who's going to do it? If you aren't here, who will do it? What if one of those four friends was like, man, I'm not going. That's all just a bunch of hype. I've heard those stories. There's no way that stuff is true. Man, y'all figure it out. I mean, there's four corners to this blanket, but maybe, maybe y'all can like tie one corner and make it a triangle or something. Maybe you can figure it out. What if one of those four was like, no, man, I don't have the faith to go through with that because I've got my own stuff that I'm dealing with. I don't have the faith for that right now. What if one of those four friends said no? That man may have never met Jesus. There's a lot of people that were in the crowd that day. So much so that they couldn't even get in to hear Jesus teach. They didn't bring anybody to Jesus. They showed up They showed up because they heard it was going to be a good worship service, like some crazy stuff was going to happen. They heard that he was a good teacher. They came to get. They came to receive. They came to, to, to take. They came for that. And I'm sure, listen, if I'm there and you're telling me, like, Jesus is teaching, that's where I want to be, right? There's nothing wrong with being there for that reason. But they did not get the experience of seeing their friend get up and walk. They did not get the experience of looking down on the face of Jesus when he smiles and says that your faith, your all's faith, has made this man whole. They didn't get that experience because they were just there to take and not to give. That man would still be sitting by the town gate praying someone would walk by and remember him if his four friends had not said, we'll take you. We'll listen to you, and we'll take you. That man needed his friends. 
Theologically, we know that the faith of his friends was not what saved this suffering man. We know that to be true. And while their faith was not decisive, it was still necessary. This man needed his friends, and this church needs you. These people need you. Your family needs you. Your spouse needs you. And you have an opportunity for everyone in this room, for those that you meet in other places, for those that you work with, for your own family, for your own spouse, to be the one that says, I'm here for you, and if you need me to hold your hand, to walk with you, or for crying out loud to put a hole in the roof so that you can get to Jesus, I'm in with you. Let's go. That's what church is. It's not this stuff. It's saying, I'm all in with Jesus and I'm bringing you with me. Let's go. That's what we're here for. Listen, here at Providence, we are not, we are not a consuming church. That is not what we do. It's just not, if you're here for that, if you're here to consume and to take, man, I'm, I honestly am glad that you are here. But you probably won't stick around for too long. We've been doing this for 12 years now. I kind of have a general idea of how it's going to go. If you show up because you're like, I am entertained, I like it here. At some point, it'll wear off. At some point, you'll leave. Just one Sunday, you won't be here, and then you'll be gone. You'll ghost. I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. People just disappear. If you're here just to get and to be entertained, you'll leave. But if you're here to be able to walk with people and to be able to sit with people and to be able to live your life around people and to be able to share your faith with people, if you're here and you say, I want to get to know people, not just because I'm, I'm lonely, but because they seem to know Jesus and, and, and maybe they can help me know Jesus better. That's what we're built for. We're not built to be super entertaining. We don't have every program under the sun, and we never will. Our goal is to get you to Jesus. That's what we want. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't claim that we do it super well. We want to be better in every way that we can. We want to get better at that. But over and over and over and over and over and over, this truth is confirmed to me. That the best way you're going to get to Jesus is whenever you go with somebody else. And they go with you. That's why we have front porch communities. That's why we have discipleship groups. It's why we do ministry the way that we do it. Because you need your friends. You need the people in this church. And they need you. And so that is my hope. That is our goal here at Providence. That is what we want. Don't miss the blessing that causes you to walk away from this place saying something like these people. We've never seen anything like that before. Not because the the worship set was banging. Not because the preacher did a great job that day and you're like, man, that was amazing. But because you saw your friend rise and walk. Because you saw the face of Jesus 
And he looked at you and he smiled. And he said, your faith and the faith of your friends brought this man to me. And his faith, along with yours, means this man is forgiven. Because you held the rope and you placed him ever so gently at the feet of Jesus. Friends, this is what church looks like. This is what evangelism looks like. It's not going out and telling people how dumb they are, how wrong they are. Holy Spirit will take care of that. It's about telling people how good Jesus is. And in the end, you get to see Jesus say, rise and walk, your sins are forgiven. Let's do that together. We need more of that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, it is my own personal confession that church has been too much about the stuff of church. That my relationship with you has been, has been built around so many other things, so much self-righteousness, so much, so, so much chasing after so many distractions, drinking out of the wrong cups. Father, help me to drink deeply from the living water and make me a better steward of my relationship so that I am bringing people to you. Father, I pray that would be true of the people here at Providence, that we would not show up looking all the time for what we can receive, but instead we would show up and we would say, I'm here for you, friend. I'm here for you, wife. I'm here for you, husband. I'm here for you, son and daughter. I'm here because I'm helping lower you down to the feet of Jesus. Father, I pray this morning you would open our eyes to those that are sitting on mats all around us and can't seem to find their way through the crowd. May we sit with them in their pain. And may we walk up on the roof with them and bring them to Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just a few minutes, we'll take the Lord's Supper. I'll come back up and I'll, I'll talk about that. We're going to sing here and respond to what we've just read.